Gerstein's Funeral Home is waiting for you. Players in Purgatory takes place across the bridge on the road to nowhere. When I was trying to make sense of the world, when I was three or four years old, I wondered if the people I met outside my own family and neighborhood were the same people with morphed faces. One day I realized, oh, I guess that's not true. That wasn't going to stop me years later from writing a creepy story with that same scenario of a small group of people who are, in reality, morphed versions of other people. Just a group of players in purgatory. These people are trying to force others into the Gerstein's funeral home where they would become part of the living dead. That is one hell of a creepy thought. From 1968, there was the movie The Night of the Living Dead. I didn't use The Night of the Living Dead as a template. What happened to me was real. After my cousin's death, I had to pick up some paperwork from the funeral home. I drove into the lot and thought I would simply walk in. This place had always given me the creeps because members of my family and relatives had passed through on the way out. I rang the bell. It was loud enough to wake the dead. The front door was locked. Why would it be open if nobody was there? Oh, were they? I remembered what the funeral director had told me. I could always enter through the side door, walk into the parlor, and pick up the paperwork he had left on the hall table. This sounded simple enough, but as I opened the door, I thought of the great horror actor, Vincent Price, who might have said, I have got your paperwork, followed by a maniacal laugh. Mr. Price was not available. I, Robert P. Fitton, had stepped into the embalming room. Oh my God. I didn't want to be in that room where everyone had been prepared for the crypt. I was also a Dark Shadows fan, and thoughts of Barnabas Collins' shenanigans crept down my back like a cold scoop of ice cream in a cold freezer. And the equipment was right there, hanging from the walls on the corpse's tables. I walked slowly as to not awaken the spirits. That wouldn't work, because the spirits must have known I was already in there. Step by step, I left the embalming area, knowing I would have to return, or perhaps I could slip out the front door from the inside. How did I feel? Like Mo, Larry, and Curly in this undated photo. I turned, and there was the folder with the paperwork on the glossy mahogany table. The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany, Alabama song by Kurt Wheel, should have been playing on the funeral home speakers. Not the Doors version or Audra McDonald, both versions I like, but the original freaky version from 1930, sung by Lotta And It's so weird, I can't even classify it as creepy. And here it is from 91 years ago for all you aficionados of the sublime. I shuffled to the hall table. I had the paperwork and began a march to the front door. I don't know how, but the door was locked from the inside also. Now come on, Fitton, this is crazy. Crazy, I turned and passed the table and entered the hall to the embalming room. I suppose I could have started whistling the Alabama song. All those tubes and tools, no way could I be an undertaker, or even an official mourner. I leaped outside as if I were emerging from the silty underwater of a swamp. I thought as if I were Woody Allen and had delusional daydreaming about a scenario where the SUV wouldn't start and I would get pulled back inside the funeral home by unseen forces. 
I have never been back to that funeral home. The idea for plays in purgatory floated around in my head for a long, long time. Finally, I wrote it and, and recorded the audio. When the pugnacious Ralph Norman approaches the drawbridge manned by the strange gatekeeper, he's about to enter a warped reality. He had never seen this bridge, and the sky becomes darker. Norman crosses the bridge, and the gatekeeper vanishes. He is met by a crazed little man named Smelter, who warns him about the players, 13 of them. They want everyone to become like them. It is from the back room of Gerstein's funeral home that the transformations take place where they absorb people into their being. Norman's car is now missing. Smelter keeps following him, warning him of a high-pitched sound when they're nearby. Then Smelter steals Norman's 50-yard line football tickets and runs away. Smelter is hit by a car but survives because he doesn't want to go to Gerstein's. Smelter breaks away with the tickets. An odd bus driver and a suspicious cabbie add to the creepy feeling. Norman finds Smelter in the side pew at a church, the parishioners singing Nearer My God to Thee. But when the cabbie shows up, Smelter calls him a player. He says, I know the 13. They morph their faces. They make you think they're different people. Norman finally sees the Victorian Gerstein's funeral home. The Gerstein undertakers, rigid and pasty, take up positions in the street. Later, he's at the football game and Smelter shows up. He, again, he says, they morph their faces, brother. Smelter has been running from the players for three weeks. They are a force central to all being. Norman berates Smelter and says it's all inside his head. The players don't exist. Back in the city, Norman stares at the glowing hurricane lamp in the Gerstein's window. Inside, the red floral wallpapers are evident. Smelter was inside, forced to a high-backed chair, and then Norman is pulled into Gerstein's. Smelter's name is on the parlor marquee. Formaldehyde is in the air. He's trapped inside the funeral home as Smelter walks from the embalming room. Norman fights his way into the garage and drives a hearse back into town. Now he is taking Smelter's role and warning others with Smelter's words. RPF.